Welcome back to Revolution and Ideology. I'm Nick. Jared. This is our third episode in a series of four episodes on Herbert Marcuse's One Dimensional Man. If you haven't yet watched or listened to the first two episodes of this series, I highly suggest that you do so. It'll give you a lot of context uh, for what we are about to talk about. This episode is on basically what Marcuse means by one-dimensional. When he refers to man of advanced industrial society being one-dimensional, uh, what does that mean? And then more specifically, how that happened according to Marcuse. And we'll talk about his concept of repressive desublimation, uh, which is hugely interesting. So first I wanna talk about how man was quote-unquote two-dimensional before in in advanced industrial society. Marcuse uses the term negative thinking, and he's not talking about negative as in bad. He's talking about negative in the dialectical sense, which we're not going to go into what dialectics are. That's way beyond the scope of this episode. But just think of it as negation of the existing order, not negative as in bad, but negative as in negating. So he says that man, um, before advanced industrial society, possessed one dimension of their consciousness, their way of thinking and behaving, which was negative which acted as a critique and negation of the existing order. So he says, um, prior to advanced industrial society, man was uh, two-dimensional. And he says, basically the two dimensions were on the one hand, the subject internalized the dominant ideology of the time, but on the other hand, maintained an awareness of that internalization and that indoctrination. And that second dimension is where the critique and etc. was able to reside and resulted from. So he had an awareness of the contradictions that were present in the dominant way of being. And so somewhere using the dialectical model, those two, like the the, the positive and the negative, somehow formed a synthesis and came mm-hmm. up with a new dialectic or dominant thesis for that individual right. thinker. Mm-hmm. Okay. Marcuse says, this was the, quote, interdimension of the mind in which opposition to the status quo could take root. So this second dimension, this negative critical thought was basically, it could serve as the impetus for revolution, right? These deep critiques of society and actions behind those critiques that could happen. So one of Marcuse's main theses is that this second negative dimension of thought has been, he uses the term, whittled down in advanced industrial society. Um, and we'll talk about why in just a second. And this is what results in the one-dimensional man of advanced industrial society. Um, so let's talk about a little bit now about that was the two dimensions that existed prior to advanced industrial society. Let's talk about one-dimensionality, which Marcuse uh, really focuses on. Um, and I like the title of the introduction of the book is called The Paralysis of Criticism, Society Without Opposition. And that's really Marcuse's main point, is that advanced industrial society exists without any true opposition because the subjects of advanced industrial society find themselves incapable of thinking in a way that negates or critiques the existing order. And that's a result of advanced industrial society becoming so totalitarian ideologically and materially that it prevents this way of thinking. Our uh, first episode talked about the totalitarianism of advanced industrial society. So go check that out. 
Uh, Weber's Iron Cage in a way a little bit. Oh, yeah, like, like we can't even think outside. Like there is no such thing as outside the box thinking. Anything that we even posit as outside the box mm-hmm. thinking is actually still under the dominant discourse of advanced industrial society yeah. and it's and it's ideological purview, capitalism or republicanism or whatever it might be. Like those those mm-hmm. that there is nothing there's nothing outside the box. That's funny that I never connected Marcuse and Weber until we recorded the second episode of the series and now right. that's another great connection right. that I never really put together. Okay. Uh, Just a quote by Marcuse. He says, in the medium of technology, culture, politics, and the economy merge into an omnipresent system which swallows up or repulses all alternatives. So it's actually through this analysis that this is Marcuse's original contribution to traditional like orthodox Marxist thought. So in traditional Marxist thought, there's the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, and the proletariat are the ones that are oppressed in internalizing the dominant ideology of the time, right? But for Marcuse, the dominant ideology completely encompasses the thought and behavior of every single subject of advanced industrial society, whether you are elite or you are working class, whether you are bourgeoisie or proletariat alike, you are a victim of this totalitarian, singular one dimensionality, this way of thinking. Now, of course, the elite suffer less like materially in this uh, society, but neither the elite nor the working class can escape uh, ideologically, which yeah, is still really trapped. important. Their, their, their brains are still like yeah. linear focused. And so advanced industrial society becomes so efficient at gaining the submission of its members that they become incapable of recognizing their indoctrination. We'll get to more specifically of how that happens in just a second. And for Marcuse, this is a new type of alienation. Um, we actually have an episode on the Marxist concept of alienation. So check that out if you want more specifics there. Marcuse says that this is a new type. He says, quote, I have just suggested that the concept of alienation seems to become questionable when the individuals identify themselves with the existence which is opposed upon them and have it in their own development of satisfaction. This identification is not illusion, but reality. However, the reality constitutes a more progressive stage of alienation. So reality has reality and illusion have basically synthesized into one to where the subject is incapable of telling the difference between the two. Um, This is also an original sort of contribution to Marxist thought by Marcuse, where he takes the terms true and false consciousness, which are key to Marxism, really conceptualized by Georg Lukács in his works. Uh, Very interesting. But he says basically the proletariat have uh, sort of two consciousnesses. The true consciousness, which is their awareness of reality and awareness of their oppression. And you can think of this as Marcuse's negative way of thinking. And then false consciousness, which is an illusion and which enables them to identify their interests with that of their oppressors. So this is an illusion. It's a false way of viewing the world. It does not reflect reality. For Marcuse, these two merge into one so that there is no difference between the two. So here's another quote by Marcuse. He says this more progressive stage of alienation, quote, has become entirely objective. The subject which is alienated is swallowed up by its alienated existence. There is only one dimension. 
and it is everywhere and in all forms. The achievements of progress defy ideological indictment as well as justification. Before their tribunal, the false consciousness of their rationality becomes the true consciousness. So their illusion becomes the only way of viewing the world, and they're no longer able to be aware of their oppression or reality, what is really going on in society. Um, do you have anything to add before we continue? No, I think you're going to, I mean, there are definitely examples that I want to throw in mm -hmm. that might, might ground this a little bit more, but I want to get to like the next part before we okay. start like bringing it into the modern era. So there are two ways when we, which we could view this uh, one dimensionality. The first is we could say this <coughs> is the end of ideology. There is no more dominant uh, discourse and its critique that ideology is over, right? And many people, scholars from Marcuse's time to current era have said that we exist in a post-ideological world. Marcuse disagrees, but we'll get to that in a second. The second way you could think about this is total ideology, um, full, completely all-encompassing ideology in which no one possesses the ability to see the world for, for it really is, that true consciousness is completely gone and everyone is fully encompassed in the false consciousness. Marcuse agrees with the latter. He agrees with total ideology yeah, versus the end of ideology. hegemony. Yep. He says, quote, this absorption of ideology into reality does not, however, signify the end of ideology. On the contrary, in a specific sense, advanced industrial culture is more ideological than its predecessor, inasmuch as today the ideology is in the process of production itself. And this is a furthering of the idea of how industrial, uh, advanced industrial society is totalitarian. Its ideology is totalitarian as well, as well as in the way that it dominates our time and the material forces of production. It dominates us ideology, ideologically too in a totalitarian way. We no longer are able to think outside of and practically, and practically, that's why, like, if we were to critique the left in this case, that's why they're still like, like, drawing inspiration from like documents written in 1848. They're, mm -hmm. They they they've not been able to develop anything beyond that because of the hegemony of advanced industrial society. Yep, we've it's already painfully obvious. Like again, we love Marx and we love the Manifesto and, and Capital and all of those and Bakunin and and all of those wonderful revolutionary catechism and all these things, but they're. They're not effective. They're completely mm -hmm. ineffective, and yet we're still talking about them because we're stuck in this AIS, right? This advanced yeah, industrial system. Right. According to Marcuse's theory, we are literally incapable of thinking in any way that could provide actual critique that would be effective at bringing it in. At this point, the yeah, order. they're cute asides, and we're and they're good releases, and give us the false consciousness themselves of some sort of alternative or that that we are crystal clear thinkers that see beyond like the what but they're not they're actually not that mm -hmm. exactly okay so let's talk about how this happens a little bit because it'll sort of illuminate this idea even more Marcuse invents the term repressive desublimation. Now, this is his foray into psychoanalysis, of which I am not an expert, so we're going to simplify this down as much as we absolutely can, uh, probably doing it a disservice uh, in the meantime, and we're going to avoid going into Eros and Civilization, which is Marcuse's uh, initial uh, really influential book where he talks about much more psychoanalysis and Freud's theory specifically and so forth. We're just going to stick with this. Uh, so it's going to be simple, but hopefully um, it'll at least ring true a little bit. So repressive desublimation. First, let's talk about what sublimation is. So sublimation is a Freudian psychoanalytic concept, um, which actually Freud doesn't invent. It actually links back to Nietzsche, but we're not going to obviously go back to that in this episode. That's beyond the scope of what we need to do. So it simplistically can be explained as a process through which an individual's 
socially unacceptable wishes may be, um, and this is a quote, directed to a higher goal which is free from objection. So that's Freud, if you're curious, it's from the origin and development of psychoanalysis, one of his essays. So it should be no surprise that Freud makes use of sexuality and sexual urges in this. So I'm going to read a quote of Freud that will help us explain this. He says, the energy of infantile wish excitations is not excluded, but remains capable of application. While for their particular excitations, instead of becoming useless, a higher, eventually no longer sexual goal is set up. The components of the sexual instinct are especially distinguished by such a capacity for the sublimation and exchange of their sexual goal for one more remotely and socially more valuable. Okay. So, as an example, if I have some desire that is socially unacceptable, let's say, like, uh, the example I'm going to use here throughout, and we'll add some others in here, is, like, I want to have an affair uh, and cheat on my wife, that I know that that is socially unacceptable, so instead, I am going to manifest that desire in some way that is socially acceptable, so I might go paint, or I might go exercise at the gym, or I might become a workaholic, and so forth. But I am repressing this original libidinal desire um, and instead manifesting that um, in this other way. Now, I, though, as a subject for Freud, maintain an awareness of this repression. You can relate this to Marcuse's second dimension of consciousness, this negative thinking. As long as I am aware of how I am being repressed by the system and forced to manifest this desire in some other way, then I maintain that second level of consciousness. And I, am, uh, I have two-dimensional thought, uh, tying this in with Marcuse's um, thinking. Interestingly, Freud writes a work that's much less about the individual and their psyche and much more about, it's kind of sociological, it's called Civilization and Its Discontents. Uh, which is kind of interesting if you're curious on Freud and sort of how he relates this stuff to society overall. You can read that. And that's sort of the inspiration for Marcuse's title of Eros and Civilization. Um, it's linking it back to this work by Freud. Okay. So sublimation is repressive. Desublimation is, in theory, the reverse process. When this uh, repression, this manifestation of this desire now gets manifested in its true form. So if we're continuing the example of this man that wants to cheat on his wife, um, now he can stop painting or working out or being a workaholic and instead actually have an affair and a mistress and cheat on his wife. So that's the process of desublimation. It's just the reverse. So the subject is free to act out their libidinal desires. Okay. Marcuse makes use of this repressive desublimation, but he argues that in advanced industrial society, that desublimation is also repressive. And this is his term, repressive desublimation. That desublimation should be freeing because it gives me the freedom to act out my true libidinal desires. And so I should be free as a result of that. I'm no longer repressed and forced to manifest them in uh, some socially acceptable way, like working out or being a workaholic or whatever. Now I can actually do the thing. I can do the thing that I actually desire. But Marcuse says that the opposite is actually true, that when we are free to act out these true urges, these true desires, that that actually becomes more oppressive in advanced industrial society because of the way that technology as a social process um, exists. 
So, um, I'm in not simple re- terms, regardless of how we choose to act out these frustrations, or if we're even fully conscious of these frustrations, and I'm going to use a very uh, s- a basic term here that everyone should un, we're all simping for the system at this point. <laughs> we're all. I can't believe you just used the word simp. Yeah, we're all. We're all okay. just simping. Wow. All right. Whew. Okay. That was unexpected. I know. Okay. So, and on Twitch, by the way, that term now. Now I know. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're never going on Twitch with this episode. <laughs> Okay, so think about, we can understand why that would be freeing, right? I'm no longer repressed, and now I can act out all of my things. Marcuse says, as a result of the technological advancements and the sort of liberal way of thinking in advanced industrial society, that we actually are all free to act out our true libidinal desires. The man that wants to have an affair can completely do that. In fact, nowadays, he can use like apps on his phone to find a mistress that specifically exists for that purpose, and so forth. Any desire that you could possibly have, you can act out in our society. Even like the most disgusting and frightening desires that people have, there are avenues through which they can act those out in our society, which is its own problem. But, but it that's still perpetuates issue. the linear process of advanced industrial society. Well, yeah, that's what we're getting to, yeah. right? So that should be freeing. However, Marcuse argues that since we are able to do that, it now completely removes the awareness of our oppression. So before, in traditional uh, repressive sublimation, we maintained an awareness of how we were repressed. Marcuse says now that we are free to act everything out, that that second dimensionality of thought is now removed, that we can now be free, completely free, with air quotes, we'll get to why you're not actually free as a result in a second, because we could, we're free to act out all of our desires, and so we lose this second dimensionality of thought. We no longer are capable of thinking in a way that maintains an awareness of our own repression, and as a result, being able to critique and act out those critiques of society in a way that might be revolutionary, that might lead to a qualitative change in the way that the world is organized. We lose that as a result of being able to desublimate every urge and desire that we would possibly have. This is how man becomes one-dimensional, where uh, previously we would have considered uh, two-dimensional thought, right? This two-dimensionality. And repressive desires could have manifested themselves in ways that were direct critiques to reality, ways that were direct critiques to the way that society existed. That no longer exists. That second dimension of thought is completely gone. Go ahead. I don't have anything. I oh, mean, I, I guess you were about to say something. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just thought it's it's uh, even though this is, it isn't necessarily like sexual in any way. It's like buying a Che Guevara T-shirt online. Mm-hmm. It's like this this minor act of defiance in your own brain is still. I mean, you it, yeah. it, it gives you false consciousness that I'm aware of what's going on and I'm a revolutionary at heart and I'm going to wear this T-shirt. But the whole process from again even engaging in capitalism and purchasing the shirt to the process by which one went through getting that shirt, mm-hmm. like the whole thing. The modern example I was going to use is clicktivism. Ah, uh, clicktivism. Where like is we good fully one. like, oh, I'm so revolutionary. I'm going to share that meme that like that is, it's absolutely absurd. We think that we are right critiquing the system and taking part in like true revolutionary action, but it just ser- functions to f- further perpetuate that system, and it's not a true critique at all. And that leads right. into what we'll get to There's, more. There's I mean second, numerous but, examples. It's like we talked yeah. about like how did we go from like fight the power to like fancy in hip hop, right? That mm-hmm. like like the, the system took this critique, absorbed it, digested it, and reproduced it to perpetuate the system. Yeah. So I'm going to read a quote from Marcuse in a second, but I'm going to talk about the concept of mediation because that's what uh, sublimation is. It's a mediation of our interaction with reality. So I am con- constantly 
if we exist in a sublimation, right, I'm constantly forced to repress my desires and manifest them in a way that is socially acceptable. And that is a continuous process. So my experience with the world and interaction with reality is constantly mediated by this process of sublimation. When we get to a point where everything is desublimated and we are capable of just acting out our urges, we now exist in this unmediated interaction with reality. Our entire existence is unmediated. That's important for Marcuse. And he says, quote, the organism is thus being preconditioned for the spontaneous acceptance of what is offered. Inasmuch as the greater liberty involves a contraction rather than extension and development of instinctual needs, it works for rather than against the status quo of general repression. One might speak of institutionalized desublimation. The latter appears to be a vital factor in the making of the authoritarian personality of our times. This is how this desublimation, us acting out of our, our true urges, actually functions to perpetuate the system rather than to liberate it, us from it. Because, like I said, you would think that you would feel more free, that now you can act out all these things, but it actually serves to, he says, contract our urges. And as a result, just perpetuates the system even further. And we lose this second dimension of thought. And this is how advanced industrial society um, achieves complete totalitarianism and desublimation itself becomes repressive rather than liberating. And further, to take this into like beyond the sexual, this is why protest and et cetera now has been completely consumed by advanced industrial society to a point where it is no longer even effective. No. Being out in the streets and rioting only functions to sell more riot gear and create more police officers, and we need to buy more tear gas, and we need to militarize the police. We need to increase the budgets of all of these things and so forth. It only functions to perpetuate the system. Protest itself as an action has been fully encompassed and enclosed within the capitalist system and been completely rendered um, ineffective. And not just on the oppressive side, on the protest side as well. We need to buy masks with cute little catchphrases on them, and, 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 and we don't worry about where they're being produced or mm -hmm. what sweatshop they're in or we need to go to uh, whatever these grocery stores and get more like uh, poster boards with markers and so on and so forth and we're going to carry our lattes to the protest and then we need to support the protesters by bringing them all bottled water which is a whole different set of issues that are attached to that but like it's there is no escape in that regard. Mm -hmm. Like, again, protest itself has been, again, absorbed, consumed, digested, and, and, and to be blunt, shit out um, by the system itself. Yep. With to, no actual eff efficacy attached to it. Right. It's completely ineffective. So this is, a, I think, I use protest intentionally, clearly, because it's a really good example of how we are now free to act out our desires. If I want to protest the system, I can fully do that. I can go through a brick through the window. I can go down in the street. I can fight. I can, I can do all of those well, things. Well, in some countries. Uh, 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 well, yeah, we about the United States now. I was yeah. going to say, you have to be a little bit more tempered here. Yeah. But yeah. I am fully free to go do that. And I might end up in jail and there will be consequences for me as an individual. But the system itself is completely unfazed. In fact, it's better for it. And that's kind of Marcuse's argument for how, even though we're free to act out our true urges, it's completely ineffective in creating real change in the system itself. Okay, moving forward from repressive desublimation, let's talk about Marcuse's discussions here of art, literature, he uses the term high culture, 
and how those have also been completely drained of their truly revolutionary and critical uh, potential. If you're curious, before I go into Marcuse's theory, uh, Theodore Adorno, who is another member of the Frankfurt School, is like famous for this. This is really his like wheelhouse. Um, he comes up with the idea of the culture industry and so forth. Um, so if you want more here, check out Adorno's work, and we can link to some of that as well. But Marcuse argues that art, high culture, previously was a representation of the second dimensionality of thought, the true critique, the true resistance, and it existed separate and apart from mainstream society. Unless co-opted by a mainstream society. There was yeah. both, right? There were mm -hmm. like, I mean, we can think of like a, I don't know, like a, a, a Renaissance king having a portrait painted of him. That's not, right. that's not that second part, but yeah. Well, even that is, and I'll talk about that in a second. Oh, okay. So Marcuse says, quote, the truth of literature and art has always been granted, if it was granted at all, as of a higher order, which would, should not and indeed did not disturb the order of business. What has changed in the contemporary period is the difference between the two orders and their truths. The absorbent power of society depletes the artistic dimension by assimilating its antagonistic contents. In the realm of culture, the new totalitarianism manifests itself precisely in the harmonizing pluralism where the most contradictory works and truths peacefully coexist in indifference. So this is going into what uh, you were talking about a little bit. He says, art represented before the unhappy consciousness. This is a term from Marcuse. The unhappy consciousness is the awareness of the contradictions and repression inherent in society. So think of man in pre advanced industrial society maintained this second dimension of thought, this unhappy consciousness, right? So this is Marcuse's term for the second dimensionality, the true critique, their awareness of the contradictions and repression. He says, even though the elite are traditionally the consumers of high culture, so this is going into what you were talking about, he calls this the bourgeois order. He says, the bourgeois order remained an order which was overshadowed, broken, refuted by another dimension, which was irreconcilably antagonistic to the order of business, indicting it and denying it. And in the literature, this other dimension is represented not by the religious, spiritual, moral heroes who often sustain the established order, but rather by a disruptive such disruptive characters as the artist, the prostitute, the adulteress, the great criminal and outcast, the warrior, the rebel poet, the devil, the fool, those who do not earn a living, at least not in an orderly and normal way. Okay, so pause for a second because I want to talk about what Jared just said because I think it's crucial. If the king has some art in his palace that was done by a truly revolutionary like resistance artist, that that's still in pre-advanced industrial society represented a true critique. The fact that it merely exists in the king's palace doesn't remove its critical function, Marcuse argues, in pre-advanced industrial society. Well, now let's get into how that happens today. Even in the portrait example, right? Like, no, no, no. no. Like, it has to be... Like, like placating said king, or, uh, King John No, does. there's different kinds of art, right? Okay. Not all art is resistance. That's important. I mean, that's what I was saying. A good portion of art, and we've discussed this in numerous yeah. episodes on the channel, is propaganda. It's it, mm -hmm. it's the exact opposite. Right. Marcuse argues that now all art is that. That's the biggest All art difference. is propaganda. Yes. Okay. 
Because in advanced industrial society, these critical aspects of art have been transformed to such an extent they no longer represent a challenge to the status quo. Right. So like the criminal, the outcast, the prostitute, the things that he says, right? So Marcuse says, quote, to be sure these characters have not disappeared from the literature of advanced industrial society, but they survive essentially transformed. The vamp, the national hero, the beatnik, the neurotic housewife, the gangster, the star, the charismatic tycoon perform a function very different from and even contrary to that of their cultural predecessors. They are no longer images of another way of life, but rather freaks or types of the same life serving as an affirmation rather than a negation of the established order. And the example I use here, which I love... Tiger King. No. <laughs> God, don't even get me started. Is Scarface. Brian De Palma's 1983 film, um, the titular character, Tony Montana, that is like, by all accounts, absolutely a criminal, right? However, he's like this criminal mastermind that uh, ends up epitomizing like the capitalist dream, right? He's an immigrant. He starts from nothing. He finds himself on the streets and then he somehow pulls himself from his bootstraps up from his bootstraps to create this multi-million dollar cocaine empire. If you've seen the, if you haven't seen the film, I don't know how. If you uh, have seen the film, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But he has this huge mansion and all of these women and like all of these expensive cars, and he is like the leader of this huge, huge. So empire. even though the process is extra legal, right, or illegal, or mm -hmm. whatever, like the process itself is still the same process. It's it still mirrors, capitalist. it mirrors, it mirrors like climbing yeah. the corporate ladder. A hundred percent. Okay. His endeavor is still a capitalistic endeavor, right? He's still right. out to maximize profit and manage efficiencies and so forth. And his downfall in the film even is a result of individual flaws and or a failure to appropriately manage, right, his like entrepreneurial endeavor. So despite the fact that what he does is illegal, is incredibly violent, he's hugely misogynistic, and his behavior is just kind of... So literally corporate America anyway. Yeah literally like just grotesque throughout the entire film, he's still clearly the hero of the film and is purely capitalistic. So he no longer exists as a critique of the system. He helps to perpetuate the system because doesn't everyone that watched the film up until a point want to be Tony Montana? Yeah, and Wolf you even of Wall think Street of like, kind of thing oh, too. Oh, that's yeah. a perfect example. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. Yeah, excellent example. Same thing. So all in advanced industrial society, there is no longer true critique that exists in art, whether it's film or literature or poetry or so forth and so on. That's Marcuse's argument. Could we situate Banksy in there somewhere? It's just like one of the top I like that. Yeah. I, I, did, did, how do we situate that? How do we situate like a Banksy or like the example I gave you, like Public Enemy at one point? Mm -hmm. Like how, where do they... It no longer functions to be a true critique of the system because Marcuse doesn't argue that no critique exists, just that it is wholly ineffective. Okay. No one has ever Fair resulted enough. because they saw Banksy on a building. Yeah, right? and, That's and, not and a now they're sold for millions of dollars. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. That's okay. probably not clear if you read One Dimensional Man. I only know that because I watched a bunch of interviews with Marcuse right. and someone asked him that exact question. And he actually said there is a lot of dissent in society. It's just not true dissent because it doesn't result in an actual change of the system. Fair enough. So I think we have to yeah, categorize like true dissent and dissent, right? Yeah, like a public enemy is dissent, uh, Banksy is dissent, etc. But it doesn't actually result in anything real. Marcuse might argue because it doesn't actually reflect the second dimension of consciousness. Fair enough. It's not a true critique. Okay, so that's the unhappy consciousness. He contrasts this with the idea of the happy consciousness, which is the one dimensionality. He says, 
Quote, the loss of consciousness due to the satisfactory liberties granted by an unfree society makes for a happy consciousness, which facilitates acceptance of the misdeeds of this society. It is the token of declining autonomy and comprehension. Sublimation demands a high degree of autonomy and comprehension. It is mediation between the conscious and the unconscious, between the primary and secondary processes, between the intellect and instinct, renunciation and rebellion. In its most accomplished modes, such as the artistic ovor, sublimation becomes the cognitive power which defeats suppression while bowing to it. Then he talks about classics, which I think is completely fascinating, that even works that were truly revolutionary in the time, now in advanced industrial society, as a result of them being presented as classics, they are completely stripped from their true critical function, because they are taken out of historical context completely and fully mass-produced. So Marcuse says, quote, The intent and functions of these works have thus fundamentally changed. If they once stood in contradiction to the status quo, this contradiction is now flattened out. So they are completely removed from their historical context, and they are completely mass-produced. So I have in here the example of Marx's Capital, right? At the time, it was a completely revolutionary critique. Now, it's completely removed of its historical context when it's marketed, and I can now buy it, all three volumes, mass market paperback on Amazon, shipped to my door in two days. The absolute antithesis to the message of capital. Right. So now when I buy capital, I am now further perpetuating the profits of Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Yes, I know you can get it for free on like the Marxist um, online and so forth. Anarchist library as well. Right. Like, yeah. I want to stress how even that perpetuates the system. You must still use the internet. You must use uh, a computer to to do that. Those sites are hosted on servers, which are burning through our natural resources and so forth. You get the idea. There is no way. There is no way to consume these resources in ways that do not perpetuate the system. And as a result, their true critical function has been completely removed. Now, I argue that they come to exist not just a rap, not like let's say capital as an example specifically. They represent, they merely just symbolize Marxism as this abstract idea and not really a specific, real, true critique that could result in revolution. All right, so that is our third in our series of four episodes on Marcuse's One Dimensional Man. The next episode will be about his solution, the great refusal. So catch us online revolutionideology.com. We are on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, like and subscribe and leave a comment. If you're listening to this on your podcast app, leave us a rating and a comment there. If you really like what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Isn't that just perpetuating the system? It is. It is. There's <laughs> no escaping it. We are victims ourselves, uh, admittedly. I'm Nick. Jared. Later.